You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so when I was a young man, uh, one of my first adult jobs was I was working for a general contractor, uh, learning the basics of construction. And so after some time, I gained a little bit of knowledge, and I built up a decent amount of tools. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tip my, my hand real quick and just say that is a dangerous combination. A little bit of knowledge with tools. Okay, so one day I'm parked in the alley behind Michelle's uh, duplex. We were engaged at the time, and I looked at uh, some of the things that were in the back of my truck, and being the resourceful individual that I am, I thought to myself, I'm going to make something out of this. So I look back there, and there's a uh, piece of metal ducting for HVAC system and some sheet metal, and I think to myself, I'm going to make myself uh, one of those, um, what do you call those, a, a charcoal chimney, the charcoal starters, because everyone loves to barbecue. And so I, I start uh, creating this charcoal chimney, and I've got this sheet metal on the, the tailgate of my truck, and I've, I've cut the ducting, and I've got that piece of sheet metal uh, uh, cut very carefully, because don't forget, sheet metal is very sharp. And I'm holding the piece of sheet metal on the edge, and I'm drilling through it with my brand new drill that has two speeds, and one goes real fast. Uh, What I failed to to remember is that drill bits tend to bind, particularly in metal. (laughs) And uh, I spun that piece of now perfectly circular sheet metal at about 1,000 RPMs, and it it made contact. And it didn't just make contact with skin, it made contact with bone. We're going there this morning, guys. And so, uh, so you can see my, my finger, it, it still kind of wants to go in that direction. <laughs> so it, it took about the, the top third of my finger and turned it about a 45 degree angle. And uh, blood is spurting everywhere. So if, you're, if, if you've ever seen the scenes in the movie where you're like, that's fake. No, it's real. It really happens. <laughs> And so this is what makes it even better. I am extremely squeamish. 
Okay, my daughter had a bloody nose the other night. I was barely able to keep it together, okay? So I, I know something, has, something horrible has just happened, but I can't necessarily assess the situation or I'm going to faint. So I'm like glancing out of the corner of my eye just to see this finger that's like turned this direction. And when I assess the situation and realize that I probably am going to live, I'm going to make it, um, I start moving around, coming down the, the hallway or the, the sort of uh, the walkway to Michelle's front door, leaving a trail of blood behind me. And I get to the door, I sit down, and I'm like knocking on the door because I'm about to faint. Um, okay, so this is where it gets even better. Uh, this was at a time where you, it was legal, perfectly legal to not have health insurance. So I didn't have health insurance, and I wasn't particularly like talking to my old man at the time, so... I'm thinking to myself, my only option at this, at this point is just to wrap this thing up and just hope for the best. And that is what I did. And that was a scary night of a lot of throbbing. Next morning, I wake up, I call my boss, and he very graciously says, hey, I'm, you're, you're an idiot. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to cover your, your bills. So just go to the doctor, figure out whatever you need to do. So I go to the doctor, finally seen. The doctor comes in, and I was like, this this is killing me. I need you to fix this. Can you please stitch this up? And I will never forget the look he gave me. And he said, son, I can't just stitch this thing up now. Because now you got a deeper problem. Because you tried to cover this thing up, that there's probably infection in there. And And for me to just stitch this up without dealing with the deeper issue, you'd actually probably lose the finger. And so I began the the uh, grueling process of treating the infection beneath the surface before treating the surface wound. If you're taking notes this morning, the first note is this. (laughs) Don't use power tools when you're 18 years old. Well, it's easy, even if it's not up on the screen. The need beneath the surface The Bible tells us that there is always a need beneath the need, a need for healing beneath the need for healing. See, we often come to Jesus with very real wounds, very real pains, very real burdens, very real needs emotionally and and physically and relationally, things that burden us, things that afflict us, and even things that cripple us. And we come to God and we ask, God, would you please relieve me? Would you please Just say the word and take this away. Would you stitch me up and send me on my way? But God, we need to remember this morning, God is not only the great physician, but God is the wise physician. He's not only capable, but he's wise in his healing. Now, as we look at the story of Scripture, what we know is that these are all things that God eventually intends to restore. In fact, the hope that we have in Christ, and really the hope of Christ's second coming when he comes back at his return, is a promise that we find in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, that says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is a promise that we're banking on. But here in Mark, we're confronted with the reality. That though Jesus does care for our physical and God and Jesus does care for our external lives and he cares for all of our needs, there is something deeper that is ailing us. There is an infection 
beneath the surface that the Bible calls sin. The Bible calls this sin. And it's a condition that we are all, without exception, born into. It's a condition that separates us from God. It's a condition that enslaves us. It's a condition that wreaks havoc in the world around us and brings brokenness into our lives. There's one disease that can truly destroy us, both in this life and in eternity. And the Bible describes this as sin. The good news is that there is medication for this. And the medicine for this sin, really the only cure for this sin, is forgiveness. To be made right with God through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, imagine this scene with me. Jesus is back in Capernaum, Mark tells us, where he had previously spent time healing people. If you remember, this is, the, uh, this is the town where people came in droves to see the miracle worker. In fact, the night before he left, people are lining up, the door, lining up at the door to see Jesus and to be healed by this miracle worker. And now he's back, and sure enough, the crowds are back. In fact, there's so many people there that Mark describes that there's no room. In fact, there's not even room at the door. And so Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom again to them. But what seems pretty evident is that these crowds are more interested in the miracles than the message. These crowds are more interested in what Jesus is doing in the moment than what he is saying about eternity. And so a paralytic man and his friends show up. And, but it looks, in fact, this, this, this scene is chaotic. He, he shows up, but he realizes that other people have the same thing in mind. And there's a ton of people there. It, it, just imagine like St. Joe's on a Friday night with a full moon. I mean, everyone is there and their mother just tr- with, desiring the same thing as him, to be fixed, to be healed. So desperate to get close, they get this idea, they break a hole in the ceiling, and they begin to lower this man down into the middle of the room, and everyone is bound to be looking at this time, including the homeowner, right? If I'm the homeowner, I'm, I'm thinking, freaking, hey, what is this guy doing there? I may believe that this was actually Peter, Peter's home, and so he's being, you guys are a little bit, a little bit cold this morning. Um, I thought that the finger being chopped off joke would, would have got you there, but okay, join me. So desperate to get close, he's lowered down the ceiling. Everyone's looking at him, but Jesus turns to this man, and instead of saying what he and everyone else would have imagined he was going to say, be healed, Jesus says something crazy. Instead of saying be healed, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say be healed initially. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I have to imagine at this moment, as he's being lowered down, his heart would have sunk a little bit. All the way that he had come, all the effort that they had you know, spent to get him there, his friends, to, to bring him into the presence of Jesus, this was his one last shot at walking again. And that all seems to be going out the window as Jesus begins to talk about sin. Or so he may think. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, points out just how much of our lives are spent concealing the burden that plagues our hearts. The the weight that sits heavy on us, that we're very quick to equate with stress, and that we're very quick to equate with fear and anxiety and depression, as real as these things may be. But the point is, we often fail to ask the deeper question. 
We see the symptoms, but we fail to ask the deeper question, where is this coming from? What is truly plaguing my soul? He goes on to say this, it's easier to say my tooth is aching than my heart is broken. It's easier for us to say my heart or my tooth is is aching rather than my heart is broken. And what Jesus is revealing through this account of the paralytic is that he cares both about the apparent needs, the ones that we see, but he also cares about the hidden needs of the heart. You see, this pronouncement of forgiveness is really the acknowledgement that we cannot, and please hear me, we cannot be genuinely made whole until the brokenness that has been brought about by sin is healed through the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. We cannot be genuinely whole until we discover that forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that Jesus came to die to accomplish for us. Jesus, we read, he's going to get to the physical healing. We already know the conclusion of this story. But what's important to know is that he begins with the heart. He's going to get to the healing, but Jesus begins in the heart. Because whether this man knows it or not, this was his truest need. His truest need was deeper than where he recognized it. Whether this man could discern what was going on or not in this moment, this was the truest longing of his soul. Now, some of us may be saying, well, how does he know that? Well, as Augustine put it, the Lord is closer to us than we are to ourselves. Think about that thought. The Lord is closer to us than we are to ourselves. The Lord knows us better than us. The Lord knows you better than you. The Lord knows your needs better than you know your needs. And top of the list for every single one of us is the need to be truly and forever forgiven. Ernest Hemingway begins one of his short stories with this line. He says, Madrid is full of boys named Paco. And he goes on to explain the meaning. He says, there's a joke in Madrid about a father who traveled to Madrid and inserted an advertisement in the personal column of the newspaper called the El Ebro. And it simply said this. It said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. And the story goes on that the police had to be called out to serve as as sort of crowd control for the over 800 young men named Paco that showed up that day. Madrid is full of boys named Paco, but the truth beneath that is this, that the world is full of people that deeply desire forgiveness. Reality, the city is a city filled with people who deeply desire forgiveness. This is a room filled with people that desperately desire forgiveness. We are searching for ways to relieve the weight that our souls carry, waiting. Countless people just waiting to receive that news of forgiveness that has come to us. So back here in Mark, the man shows up seeking the thing that he thinks he needs most. And Jesus offers him what he's been searching for all along and didn't even know it. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, all is forgiven. Be freed from the crippling power of sin. Be restored to your father. 
Come home. Come home. The second thing to note is this, the faith beneath the surface. We see the need beneath the surface. But secondly, the faith beneath the surface. Now, this scene that we're reading of here in Mark poses quite a few theological issues. What we're reading of this morning doesn't necessarily fit fit neatly into some of our categories. And one reason why is that Jesus grants forgiveness even though he hasn't asked for it. Did you notice that? He grants forgiveness even though there's no explicit mention of repentance. And so here's the problem. The problem is this. How do we interpret this in light of the scriptures that are full of calls to repentance? How do we interpret what we're seeing here in light of all the scriptures that tell us that forgiveness requires repentance? Passages that explicitly tell us that forgiveness requires repentance. Well, Mark tells us in just a moment that Jesus is actually able to perceive the religious leaders and what really they're thinking, not even saying rather, but what they're thinking in their hearts. The questions that are going on beneath the surface. Why? Because Jesus sees beneath the surface. And the same is true when he sees this paralytic. He he sees beneath the surface. He sees all of him. And when Jesus looks at this man, he, he sees a desperate man who is bound to have tried everything to fix himself, a man who is probably on the brink of giving up on life itself, a man who is willing to to risk it all, embarrassment at best and death at worst. I mean, remember, he's coming down a hole in the roof, for goodness sake. Willing to to risk it all, willing, willing even to risk his life to cast himself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. What Jesus sees is the movement of repentance. Jesus sees the movement of repentance. Everyone else probably would have saw a crazy man coming down out of the roof. You have to really imagine this in your mind. This is just a crazy scene, coming, someone coming down from the roof. And everyone is bound to see a crazy man, but Jesus sees faith. In fact, Jesus sees the essence of faith. Listen to how Martin Luther describes faith. He says, faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. And here this man is, risking it all in the grace of Jesus Christ, risking it all in the mercy and kindness of this healer. Psalm 34 tells us that God's ears are open to the cries, our cries for help. God's ears are open to our cries for help. And even in our ugly crying. There's crying, and then there's ugly crying. And his ears are open even to the ugly crying, the kind of crying where we can't even get the words out. Even in cases like this, when it's an imperfect expression of faith. This is an imperfect expression of faith. It's not articulated in a graceful way. I think sometimes we imagine that God is waiting for us just to get that prayer just right. Father, I forgive, or I ask that you would forgive me of all of my sins, transgressions, and iniquities, just to cover all the bases. I pray to you through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Trinitarian, I'm listening, son. He's just waiting for that prayer just to get right to respond. 
but God's ears are open to our ugly cries. This man doesn't necessarily even understand what's truly at work inside of him. I don't think this man really knows the depth of his sin and the depth of what he needs from Jesus. But let's be honest, who among us can? Who among us actually can recognize the depth of our depravity and our need for grace? See, what some see as a theological problem here, we should actually see as a beautiful display of who Jesus is and how he interacts with us and how kind he is with us. What we should see here is that Jesus' willingness to forgive is greater than our ability to ask for forgiveness. What we should see here is that his reception of us is always going to outshine our response to him. Amen? What we should see here is that Jesus' perfect gift of grace is always going to be better than our imperfect repentance. Jesus is just always going to outshine our response to him. That's what makes him Jesus and us us. When we look at this story, we're not like, wow, the paralytic. We're like, no, wow, Jesus. And when people look at our lives, it's not, wow, look at them. It's, wow, look what Jesus does. Not a testimony of our faithfulness, but a testimony of God's grace. In fact, listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. A gift from God, not an opportunity for the world or God himself to pat you on the back. But an opportunity once again for God to display his glorious grace through our imperfect faith. Now truth be told, when Jesus is radically gracious, what ends up happening is typically it ruffles feathers. As we look at the Gospels, it typically ruffles the feathers of the religious. As this man is forgiven, the religious leaders begin to grumble in their hearts. Verse 7, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who is, what is he doing? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Now, the right and the wrong. The right in the sense that our sin is ultimately rebellion against God, and therefore it is God who can only truly forgive. The psalmist in Psalm 51 says, against you and you alone have I sinned. So imagine you walk over to so-and-so and punch them in the nose. And then I'm watching... And I walk over to you, and I say, you know what? That was not kind, but I forgive you. <laughs> now, you, the puncher, are going to be like, oh, okay, I feel a little bit better. But what's going on? The, the offended is saying, wait a minute. That's nice. That's sentimental. That's kind of you. But that is mine. That is my place to forgive. You're not the offended. I'm the offended. 
And in the same sense, our sin is ultimately rebellion against God, in which case only God can forgive. And so these these religious uh, scribes are right. Only God can forgive sins. But they're wrong in the sense that they see this as blasphemy. What these men see as blasphemy is actually a revelation of who Jesus is. And this is very important. One who has the authority to forgive. Jesus, the Son of Man, is the one who has the true authority to forgive. Which means that Jesus is not just a representative of God. This is a claim that Jesus is God himself. Which we now understand why these religious leaders are so outraged. Who is this man claiming to be? Jesus is claiming to be God. Not just one who communicates forgiveness, not just one out there preaching forgiveness, but the, will, the one who is willing to be sacrificed in order to bring about the forgiveness. See, forgiveness is, forgiveness is both the acknowledgement of wrong, I acknowledge that you've wronged me, but it's also bearing the cost. It's saying, I've got this. I, I'm going to suffer the cost and release you from the debt. And what Jesus is revealing, that he's not only the one willing to release us from the debt, but Jesus is the one that's headed to the cross to make sure that forgiveness is paid in full. We see a revelation of who Jesus is here. And so then he reinforces this claim by then healing him. Remember, he gets to healing him, verses 10 and 11. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home, and go home. See, what we see here in Mark is not just a single act of compassion, although it is. This isn't just a single act of compassion, but really the evidence of the radical healing of the entire person that occurs when the kingdom of God draws near to us. That Jesus transforms our lives with transformative power. In fact, when Jesus says, rise, note that word. Rise, take up your mat and go home. When Jesus uses that word rise, it's the same word that Mark uses at the end of the gospel to describe a very significant event. Any guesses as to what that is? The resurrection. Rise. Which tells us this, when God's grace comes into our lives, it comes with the very resurrection power that rose Christ from the dead, that raised him from the dead. And this is good news for us because this means that we are not left to ourselves to lift us out of our condition. You are not left up to yourself to lift you out of your condition, whatever that may be. But like the picture in the paralytic here, we are lowered down in helplessness and then raised anew in the power of God. That's how we all come to Jesus. Lowered down in helplessness and raised anew in the power of God. Amen? So a couple application points, and then I want to conclude. How do we respond? How do we, how would we respond to such a, an inspiring story like this? I want, I want to offer three brief things. The first is this, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. We all have to be willing to come to Jesus. Truth is, some of us are going to come to Jesus the conventional way, and some of us are going to come through a hole in the roof. 
Some of us are going to come on our own two feet, and some of us are going to come to Jesus flat on our back. How you get to Jesus is not the point. The point is that you come to Jesus. The point is that you come to Jesus. My, my suspicion is that some of you are looking for the ideal moment under the ideal circumstances to come to Jesus. Forget that. Like seriously, forget that. There are no ideal situations. Christ came to bring the ideal situation in the kingdom of God. Forget that. Just come to Jesus. C.H. Spurgeon said, better to come to Jesus through the ceiling than not at all. Notice the difference between the religious leaders and the paralytic. One is moving towards Jesus, and it's a pathetic sight, let's be honest. But one is moving towards Jesus, and Mark tells us that the other group, the religious group, are just sitting there. I can imagine just sitting there with their arms crossed. And what seems to me is it seems better to be the helpless person that's lowered down on a rope than to be the religious snob that's sitting in the corner. I'd rather be the pathetic sight in the house of God moving towards Christ than the religious snob with his arms crossed in the corner. When Jesus saw the religious men, he saw cynicism. When Jesus saw this desperate man, he saw faith. Come to Jesus. There are obstacles, there are fears. There could be times where it feels like the entire world, I'm telling you, where it feels like the entire world is opposed to you coming through that door. But we gotta be tenacious. We have to be tenacious in our faith. Let nothing stand in your way from casting yourself upon the forgiving and healing mercy of Jesus Christ. The second thing, the second application is this. Carry others. Let's be a community that commits to caring one another. Now, there's a point that I, I purposely neglected all throughout this, this, this sermon to, to, to point out now. Mark tells us that four men bring a paralytic man. Mark tells us that they carry him, they remove the roof, they made an opening, and they laid him down. And then look at me, look at me in verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Whose faith is he commending and responding to? Go ahead and speak it out. Theirs. Their faith. There, there, there is something about the group as a whole that moves Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, I don't even know what to do with that. And I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to let it be what it is. Jesus sees their faith, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Dallas Willard seems to not have as big of a problem as I do with this, so we'll just quote him. When faith begins to move, it moves in groups. When you are with other people, your faith is affected by the totality of the faith present, for better or for worse. This is why the community of faith is so vital for our formation. The people around us are not, look, can you just do me a favor? Look to your left and to your right. 
Those are not just people that we are brushing shoulders with in our own individual walk with Jesus. These are the means. Those people next to us are the means of God's provision for faith and faithfulness. We cannot do this on our own, and we should not leave others to do this on their own either. We need a community that's going to believe with us, and I'm going to say it, and even believe for us when we're just struggling to believe ourselves, to believe with us and for us. We need a community that carries us when we just can't pull our own weight. We need a community that bears our burden when that burden is crushing. We need a community that cares enough for each other that we're willing to sacrifice comfort and convenience to ensure that others are getting into the presence of Jesus Christ. We need that. And Christ has provided that in the church. Amen? Lastly, take up your mat. Take up your mat. Now, the early fathers loved this phrase. And I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface with one quote. But there's something significant about Jesus not just saying, rise, but saying, take up your mat. One bishop from uh, the 4th and 5th century said this. Take up your bed. Carry the very mat that once carried you. Change places so that what was proof of your sickness may now give testimony to your soundness. Your bed of pain becomes the sign of healing. It's very weight the measure of the strength that has been restored to you. So when you rise and take up your mat, whatever that mat may be, we are becoming living testimonies of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. He's saying, carry that thing that used to carry you. Let that be a testimony. Let the sign of your weakness become a trophy of my grace. Let the wounds of your past become a witness of the new life that I bring. Take up your mat and go home. This account concludes with this man walking away on his own two feet. And those who are watching being amazed and glorifying God. I mean, the people that are there are just astonished. Astonished? Astonished. <laughs> and awestruck. A lot of A words. And they're just awestruck by what they've seen. And then they begin to praise God. I love this note. This man is healed. The community praises. And so I've got a question for us to consider. Reality could you imagine being a community where this occurred? Could you, be, could you imagine being a community where this occurred? Being a community where lives are transformed by the very resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Where the community welcomed those who were longing and those who were hurting. Where people actually truly found forgiveness. Being a community where the work of the Spirit was so evident was so evident among us that people would say what the crowd said in Jesus' day. We've never seen anything like this. I've never seen anything like this. I hope you can imagine this because I believe this is why Jesus has placed us where he has placed us. If you cannot imagine this, you need to fill your imagination with hope because we are here. We live now. We are in this place 
to display the transforming power of Jesus Christ and to say to the world that Jesus changes lives. He did in that day, and he does today in a way where the community will say, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen anything like this. Let's pray.